Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Gary and Sandy say nature is undisputably really good at camouflage for animals as they have evolved. So why are there no green field mice? Good question. Dave? That is a very, very good question. It's very hard to second-guess evolution. Basically, evolution works by every jet. So if you've got a field mouse, which has got certain properties, maybe it's got short legs. When you've got lots of short field mice with short legs, Mm. but some have got slightly longer legs than others. Then if they've got longer legs, maybe they can run slightly faster and um, they can escape the owls which are coming and eating them or something. Mm. Or they can hide better. And then the ones that survive, survive. And they're the ones that go on to have children. Their children tend to be more like them. So slowly you evolve field mice with longer and longer legs or possibly better camouflage or something. Right. Now, it, I can't think of any mammals off the top of my head which are green. I, I have a subtle feeling there's always an exception to the rule and there might be one. They're not really mammals. Those are insects. Oh, yeah, they're insects. Um, <laughs> ah, close. And so the problem is that making different compounds is quite difficult. Yeah. And probably in order to do that, if the field mice did make a green compound, if there's no reason why a half green compound, something which is somewhere between the colour it's got at the moment and a green one, if that's not actually any better for the field mice to survive then they won't be selected for. Mm. So whilst a green-filled mice would undoubtedly be better than a brown one if it's living in grass, yes. if, if in order to get a gr- make a green compound, you've got to do something which is really difficult, like it, which might make it might poison the field mouse to start with, or it might involve entirely redesigning their cells in some really fundamental way. It can't evolve that way. Evolution can only work one step at a time, and if there's no steps, but if there's no set of steps, which mean the field mouse gets better and better and better between a brown field mouse and a green field mouse, it won't evolve that way. So there are lots of things which you can't evolve. You're not going to evolve a mammal with six legs. No. Because in order to evolve extra legs, you'd sort of have to sort of unevolve all the way back to some kind of slug-type thing, which can add legs without too much of a problem, and then evolve back to ma- something a bit like a mammal. And that's not going to happen because all the, all the stages in between are going to get eaten by the, by the owls or going to get killed off because they can't run very fast. Mm. Because adding a couple of extra small legs to a field mouse is not going to be an advantage. It's probably going to slow it down. Right. But there again, a lot of field mice, you know, when you see the, the, the picture, they're in cornfields, aren't they? Well, yeah. wheat fields and stuff like that. Well, the earth underneath is brown. So Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. And also, quite often, they come out at night. Yeah. So at night, most creatures don't have very good colour vision. So the colour you are isn't so important as how brightly you're coloured. So if you've got the right, the similar sort of brightness to everything around you, if something's in black and white, you're perfectly camouflaged. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that very few animals, definitely very few mammals, have got colour vision. So things like cats and dogs that can't tell that we're basically red, green, colour blind. So they can't tell the difference between red and green. So being kind of a browny colour to a dog will look the same as a kind of green, it's kind of muddy green colour. Right. Stanley Dog seems to like my red curtains. He gets underneath them. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think very few mammals, which aren't primates, can see 
in three, three colours like we can. Mm. They've, they've only got two colours, vision. So we... Testing the dog later on. <laughs> Jeff in Ipswich, Dr Dave, says, um, can you explain why my mains-powered radio continues playing for a fraction of a second after I've switched off the power? Says Jeff in Ipswich. Thanks, Jeff. Lovely question, Jeff. Basically, in a mains-powered radio, you've got a circuit which converts mains electricity in mains electricity, which is AC, it's oscillating backwards and forwards, into DC electricity at a few volts, which electronics inside the radio can cope with. Mm. Um, this involves a transformer, and it also involves a load of circuitry to convert the AC, oscillating backwards and forwards, electricity into DC, which is just going one direction. And you use things called diodes, which are essentially one-way, one-way switches and one-way valve for electricity to do that. But you've still got electricity, which is kind of turning on and off, turning on and off, turning on and off. So you need to smooth out that voltage, because otherwise it's going to cause havoc with your electronics later on. So you add components called capacitors, which mm. essentially store up electrical energy. And then if you apply a voltage to them, and then if you take it away, they release it slowly. So they sort of average out the voltage coming out of the system. And that means that they'll average it out for a short period of time. And it also means if you turn off the electricity quickly, they've still got a load of energy stored in them. So they can then release that stored energy and still run your radio for a bit. You've probably heard that they start off quite loud and as you turn them off, they kind of sort of die gently. Mm -hmm. That's because the voltage on the capacitor, as it discharges, slowly reduces. And so the electronics doesn't have enough power, as much power to play with. So it gets quieter and quieter, run switching off straight away. All right, well, uh, another one here that's come from Paul Stockdale. He says, my nine-year-old son James has a question for Dr Dave, if you have the Sounds time. Sounds dangerous. James, we have all the time in the world for you. And he asks, why is the reflection mirror image on a spoon upside down when you look at it? That's a very good question. Um, we need a spoon now and a mirror, <laughs> we don't do we? We really need a spoon and a mirror. Oh, just a spoon. It is upside down. A spoon is good too, with it having a curved surface. Yeah. And a curved mirror acts very, very like a lens. And so, I mean, in fact, they're used for telescopes, for very big astronomical telescopes, instead yep. of glass lenses, because you can make bigger ones, basically. It's a lot lighter and a lot easier to get perfect. The spoon acts like a bit like a lens. And if you've ever held a magnifying glass a long way away from you, yeah, the image inside looks upside down. It's not something I personally experienced. You've not, you've not, you've not done. If anyone at home has tried this, <laughs> if you hold it a long way away, then the image is upside down. What happens, essentially, with the spoon, if you put a piece of paper just above it, without getting too much in the way, you actually project an image on the piece of paper, an upside-down image on a piece of paper. It's essentially the way your eyes work, but because it's, it's a mirror, it's sort of folded up. It's, yeah. Imagine a lens with a mirror straight behind it. And so if you've got a lens, if you hold a piece of paper a bit behind it, you get a, an image which is upside down. Right. Because the l- light from something high up comes down through the lens and ends up low down. So you imagine a lens as a sort of hole in the wall. Light high up comes down through the lens, ends up low down. If light from low down comes up through the lens, ends up high up. So the picture's upside down. Right. If you look, at, if you look further away, um, if you actually put your eye at the point where you're getting the image, it would be completely out of focus and you wouldn't be able to see it. Yep. But if you come further away... Um, you can you can still you can then your eyes can f- focus it yeah. and you essentially see you you're looking at the upside down image so everything looks upside down. Right. Um, the, the light the light spreads out beyond the image as if it had come from a piece of paper, and so when you look at it, you see an upside down view of the world. And the the spoon is the same thing, but it's a mirror as well as a lens, so you see yourself upside down. Wow. That wasn't the most clear explanation. No. <laughs> 
James, I hope, I hope you've managed helps, to yeah. get that. I'm still thinking I need to go and get a spoon and a mirror. <laughs> I need a science kit when I come in. But thank you very much for your uh, question by email. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Now then, let us go to uh, John, who is on the phones. Hello, John. Hello, Sue. Hello, you all right? Yes, thank you. All right, you're through to Dr Dave. All right, Dave. Hello. Hello, good evening. Good well, evening. This is your life. <laughs> right, we used to have a dog called, yeah. uh, called Chip, and he was crossed with a Rhodesian Ridgeback. OK. Now, he used... My mum, this is a yellow, black and white jumper for my brother. Variegated bull. Yeah. And Shep used to growl at it, it's something wicked, he'd go for it. And you said dogs are colour blind. Oh they they can see some colours. They can see the difference between red and blue. Yeah. But yeah, quite a lot of people are red green colour blind. So they oh, can't well, tell the difference between red and green. Oh on with you. And so dogs I'm pretty sure can't tell the difference between red and green, but they can tell the difference between red and blue. Yeah, so they get they have some idea of colour, but it's not as intricate as ours. I believe Rhodesian Ridgebacks are used for hunting tigers, aren't they, in Rhodesia? I'm afraid I don't. And my knowledge on Rhodesian Ridgebacks is obviously sadly lacking. I, I could believe you. Yeah. You, th- you think it's they've been bred to dislike tigers? Yeah, yeah. In some sense. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's nice speaking to you, anyway. John, Brilliant. thank you. Uh, John, our vintage radio engineer who listens to the show. Hello, John. We love always hearing from you. With regards to capacitators... Capacitors. uh, Capacitors, yeah. Hold on. That's it. I've got a thing flashing at me. Stop it. (laughs) Not you, Dave. Best application is the flash gun. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you, especially the older-fashioned flashes, yeah. um, they've got batteries in them. Yeah. And the problem is the battery can't release its energy very quickly. So what they do is they slowly charge up a capacitor. They store lots of energy in the capacitor at very high voltage. And that's the circuit which produces high voltage, produces that high-pitch whine, oh, yeah. as you may have noticed when you yeah. charge a flash gun. Yeah. And then the capacitor can release the energy very, very quickly into the little light bulb at the top, the xenon tube at the top, and create an awful lot of light very quickly. So, yes, they used to store energy in flash guns, which is a lovely Mm. example. All right, well, let's just uh, take a question here which has come in from uh, Jeff on email. He says, um, why is rising atmospheric pressure associated with drier air? Is that when you look at your barometer? Yeah, if you look at your barometer, high pressures tend to be associated with dry, sunny days and low pressures tend to be associated with wet, rainy days. Right. And the reason is to do with essentially the way weather works. Most, virtually all weather is driven because in some places the air gets hot. Yeah. As it gets hot, it expands. Also, if it's getting hot over somewhere damp, you get lots of water evaporating. Now, strange as it may sound, water vapour is actually lighter than water vapour, so the gas, water Mm. as a gas, is lighter than air because the weight of uh, the density of a gas um, is entirely to do with how heavy the molecules are. And a water molecule is lighter lighter than nitrogen oxygen molecules, so water makes the air even lighter. And because you've got a whole lot of warm air, it starts to rise and then it rises up because cold air comes in underneath and it floats up on the colder air around either side. It rises up. And if you've got a load of warm, less dense air above your head, then the pressure's low. It also means as the warm 
damp air rises upwards, it expands and gets colder. As it gets colder, the water vapour tends to condense and form clouds and then rain, and the rain falls out and it's wet. And other places, because you've got a load of air rising in one place, you must have air falling somewhere else. This air's got no moisture in it, it's dry, which means it's slightly dense to start with. It's also been up very high in the atmosphere, so it's quite cold, so it's quite, again, even denser, and so it falls down and so it's dry. So it's, it's falling down, and because it's falling down and it's denser, the pressure's going to be higher underneath it. And so if you're somewhere where the pressure's high, then it's going to be dry, and if some pressure is somewhere low, it's going to tend to be wet. Mm. Dr Dave, thank you very much. Mike in Colchester says, uh, mentioned flash guns and all sorts of sporting events cameras are flashing. Surely the range is only about 15 feet. Are these people wasting energy? I, I, I'm not an expert on the design of flash guns. I would have thought for long ranges than they probably are. That's not to say that you couldn't design a flash gun which would work at longer ranges if you essentially put a big reflector behind it to mm. concentrate the flash into a beam, mm. then it would be a much longer range. Um, and also probably the um, the big professional photographers have much more powerful flash guns, so they probably can reach more than 15 feet, whether they can reach to the side of a football pitch. I'm not entirely sure. Well, the, um, yes, because the pitch is lit, isn't it? You yeah, and so, I mean, it, it may well make a difference, certainly if someone's relatively close. I'm, I'm sure at 15 feet, like 15, 20, 30 feet, probably do make a difference. If You, you, you could certainly design a flash gun, mm. which would make a difference. Yeah, it's like if I go to a you know, concert, I think, oh, I must take a photograph of that. And you look at it in your viewfinder with your digital camera and think, oh, that looks great. And then you just get this black blur. <laughs> You know, a blurry black, <laughs> and that's it. Because it's it. making the assumption that you're going to have the flash there, so everything's going to light up, but oh, it right. doesn't. No. The, the trick is to turn the flash off, then it doesn't expect the flash to be there. Then you get a bright blur, because you can't hold the camera still enough. Ah, but, OK. Yeah, it's that's interesting. Thank you very much. We live and learn. Um, we've got Tony on the line. Not the usual Tony, but another Tony. Tony 2, we'll call him. You don't mind being called Tony 2, do you, Tony? Oh, you're making me feel second best now. <laughs> no, it's not that you're saying best. <laughs> the alternative, Tony. Frankly, yeah. getting into trouble here tonight. <laughs> not a problem. Tony, you're through to Dr. Dave. What's your question? Yeah, hi, Dr. Dave. I watched a really strange programme the other day which said that soon cables will be a thing of the past and they can transfer electricity wirelessly to your television or any anything, which I can't understand how you can transfer electricity if you don't have a cable. And secondly, you know, you think of radiation from mobile phones, yep. 240 volts through thin air, that's going to fry you if you're in between, isn't it? Yes, I would have to agree with your worries. Um, you certainly can transfer, you can't really transfer electricity, you can transfer electricity through the air directly, that's what a spark is. That's where electric current is flowing through the air. But I'm guessing they're probably not intending on using sparks because it would get a bit dangerous. No, I mean, the thing <laughs> but, yeah. is, I saw it on the gadget show and what yeah. they showed was a a, a, a picture on the wall which actually had some form of sender unit behind yeah. it and then a television within two feet of that or three feet of that and and it was powering they did it it was powering yeah. this, this television from you, yeah you're right you can certainly transfer energy through the air um by essentially using radio waves um they're called electromagnetic radiation is a kind of light um, if you make an electric current go up and down in a, an aerial, um, that essentially vibrates the electric field in the universe free space, and that creates waves which travel out. And if you've got something which conducts electricity somewhere else, like in your TV, if these electromagnetic waves hit the TV, it will cause electrons in the, in the wire to go up and down, creating electric current. So you certainly can do it. 
but again i'd be very very skeptical like you were saying of the radiation because if you're putting significant amounts of energy hundreds of watts kilowatts through mm. the air even then i'm not sure i would want to get in between the two no, of them. No. i mean i guess you could you could have some way of spreading out so you could have have lots and lots of weak transmitters which all focus in on a tv if you had some very clever computer system to control it but even then I would worry. Apart from anything else, you've got lots and lots of energy and you, it happens to focus it on just a piece of metal somewhere. That piece yeah. of metal is going to get like very hot in a microwave. <laughs> yeah, exactly like sitting in a microwave. Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful example, actually. If you put a piece of metal in a microwave, essentially you get electric currents induced by the microwaves, which are a form of electromagnetic radiation, and they create sparks and all sorts of... Or hell can break loose. Just, so, just a very quick question. Um, thank you for that. But just a very quick question on the same subject. I have a wireless router in my house and yeah. computers everywhere. Yeah. Am I subjecting myself to radiation doing that? Um, technically, yes. Um, well, I mean, you're, you're subjecting yourself to um, very weak microwave radiation. As far as anyone can tell, microwave radiation, if you get lots and lots of it and it heats you up and cooks you, then it's bad for <laughs> you. But I haven't seen any evidence for much lower levels doing you much in the way of harm. And no. anyway, the wireless router is going to be transmitting at them probably much less strongly than your mobile phone is. It's much much you've got a much shorter range yeah and so i mean if you're not worrying about your mobile phone certainly don't worry about your wireless router and as far as i've seen there's no good evidence that mobile phones do you any harm no (laughs) thank you Oh, Tony, thank you very much, Alternative Tony. It's lovely to hear from you. Another email now that uh, has come in from... This is one from Nick. Hello, Nick, how are you? Um, He says, Dr Dave, why has the Earth's orbit not changed? Yeah, I think in his email he was talking about the fact that the sun is throwing off millions of tonnes of matter Oh, yes. Um, is it every second or every... Yeah, hang on. Um, in a show recently, somebody said that the process of burning the sun loses 4 million tonnes of mass every second. Why is it then that the Earth's orbit has not changed? Mm. I think the simple answer is that it has changed. The real thing is that the sun, although it's losing mass, it's not losing it very quickly. The sun's mass is about two with 27 zeros after it, tonnes. Right. Well, that's an awful lot of zeros. And you can lose millions of tonnes every second for billions of years. And the sun, I think, it will lose a few, maybe 10% of its mass. Mm-hmm. And as the sun loses mass, the Earth's orbit will change. I mean, there's, there's less gravity there holding the Earth in. The, the amount of energy the Earth's got in its orbit will tend to cause the Earth's orbit to increase. But then again, the Earth, there's also going to be a little bit of drag on the Earth over billions and billions of years, which will tend to cause the Earth's orbit to decrease. Mm. So I'm not sure which effect is larger. I think probably the reduction in the, in the mass of the sun is actually slightly bigger. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. But yes, it will change, but it's going to be a very small change. Uh, Jill says she's fascinated in the garden with bees. When they pollinate, what do they do after that? Go to the pub or something? Um, I think basically bees live off a combination of nectar and mm-hmm. pollen. Pollen's got lots of lots of protein in it. Nectar's got lots of sugar in it, lots of energy. Mm. And so, I mean, honeybees go back to their, will collect lots of pollen and nectar. Some of the pollen gets rubbed off onto other flowers, and so it pollinates the flowers. Mm-hmm. But they collect most. Of the, they collect more pollen, I think, than they transfer around different flowers. 
take it back to the their hive. Um, even bumblebees live in little colonies, with m- much smaller than honeybees, but small colonies, sort of a few tens of bees in each colony. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get other kinds of bees which have their own little little nests. Even within, I think even individual bees, some some species of bee live on their own. Mm-hmm. Then they either they eat some of the nectar themselves in order to power them um, and keep them going. They'll also eat some of the some of the pollen because it's a good source of protein mm. and they'll also feed it to their young inside the colonies and then they carry on. They carry on? <laughs> I mean, in, in honeybees, I'm, again, I'm not really an expert, but definitely get the, um, different ages of bee do have different jobs. Some of them uh, some of them go out and collect stuff outside the nest. Others, uh, their job tends to be to look after the young. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, it changes depending on the bee. I hope that answers some of your question. Okay, Jill, thank you very much indeed for that. Now, Marco sent an email in uh, to say, does freezing purify water? That's a good question, actually, because you look at it and you think, ah, you know, so does freezing purify water, Dr Dave? The simple answer is yes. When water freezes, it forms a crystal structure. So instead of all of the water molecules kind of wriggling past each other and being able to move past one another, so the so the you've got billions and billions of water molecules. Mm-hmm. Each one, if you put them in a row, you get about a billion in a metre. So they're very, very, very tiny things. And in liquid water, they're kind of they stick to each other, but they can they form little bonds and they break the bonds and they can move past each other. And so if you pour it, it'll flow. When you freeze it, you take the energy out, they stop wriggling so much and they tend to lock together in a structure. Mm. And water molecules are very strongly attracted to other water molecules, so they lock together in a very, very tight structure. And they tend to push other things out. So if you freeze a drink, for example, Mm. a sugary drink, then the, the ice tends to be very watery. If you have a frozen squash and then try to drink the half-frozen squash, yeah. the first liquid which comes out is very, very strong and sugary yeah. and very strongly coloured yeah. because the squash isn't taken into the structure of the water. And so the crystals tend to be very, very pure water. You can even actually separate salt from ice very well like this. All right, yeah. Sorry, salt from water by freezing it because the water tends, from the ice tends to be fairly pure water. Yeah. The last ice which freezes will tend to contain all the impurities, so yes. Mm. All right, so it does. Another one here. Why is everything much quieter when it snows? That's a lovely thing. Just the silence of the snow, it really is peace, isn't it? It is gorgeous, isn't it? Okay, basically start off with sound is a vibration through the air. Yeah. So if I um, wobble my throat here, that makes the air in my mouth vibrate, which Mm -hmm. um, then you get a wave of this vibration travelling through the air to your ears, which you can then hear as sound. Mm -hmm. So if the snow is making it quieter, then somehow the the sound is getting absorbed between you and the car driving down the road next door. Yeah. And so how do you make good, good things which absorb sound energy? One of them is you need something which will move which will be moved by the sound. The sound wave travelling through snow will move each ice crystal a little bit, uh, move each snowflake a little bit, mm. and that will absorb energy and take energy out of the sound waves. Um, also, a little sound wave bumping into ice crystals will tend to bounce off them. They've got very intricate structures, which uh, mean that you get lots of different bounces, which will tend to cancel each other out and absorb more energy. And so basically they're beautifully designed as a way of absorbing energy, both intrinsically they get moved and absorb the energy directly and the energy gets lost in eddies around them. And also because they make lots of reflections, so so sound coming from the car 
100 yards away might not all get to you in one in one route it sort of bounced off several snow crystal snowflakes and so it doesn't get you all at once it's traveled further so it's quieter mm. Mike in Colchester has called in. Thank you all very much for your calls this evening. Um, he says, um, Sue loves a dog, as we all do. And I wondered, um, he, he wonders, how did man and dog become so interdependent? It's a very interesting question. Again, anything I say will be pure speculation, because it's certainly not an area I know a lot about. You're not a dog person, I'm, are you? Well, I, I love dogs, I just don't have one. It's more the, the, the evolution of dogs yeah. and humans. I do know that humans, they do think that humans, uh, not humans, that dogs were the first species, one of the first few species to be domesticated. Mm. So they've been living around humans for tens of thousands of years. Mm. Dogs are, have certainly changed a lot in the domestication, probably more so than any other species. Because I mean, you get tiny dogs and you get huge dogs, mm. and also dogs are one of the are much much better at learning rules from from humans than any other species. Mm. Dogs are very very good at learning rules, which because we've been selecting dogs which are good at learning rules for a sure. long time. Yeah, and I would have thought on the converse of that that if dogs are useful, um, you can send them to catch birds for you, and they can defend you. Mm. If you as a human are good at getting on with dogs, then that's probably an advantage. Mm. And so I would have thought there'd be some selective pressure on humans to be better at thinking of dogs as part of the family, then the dogs will interact better with you, and then you'll get more out of the dog, and so both of you will survive better. Mm. Again, pure speculation, but, I mean, humans and dogs have evolved together for a long time, yeah. so it wouldn't surprise me if we've evolved some features which make us better at uh, identifying with dogs and better at dealing with dogs, as well mm. as dogs definitely having evolved and been bred with features which make them better at dealing with humans. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>